Welcome to the Hands in Motion podcast, brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. Here we will discuss all things upper extremity therapy, from assessment to treatment, the latest research, the patient experience, and other topics related to the field of upper extremity rehab. Learn more and subscribe today at ASHT.org. Welcome back to Hands in Motion. On this episode, we are joined by Sarah Tuberty, an occupational therapist who through her own lived experience of being born with a limb difference is helping to increase visibility and inclusion of the limb difference community. She shares with us how the language around limb differences has evolved and how we as therapists can create a supportive network for patients and families as they navigate the limb difference community. Welcome to Hands in Motion, Sarah. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us on this episode. We are so glad to have you. And before we just dive in, why don't you tell our listeners and even I have gotten a chance to meet you, but Stephanie hasn't. So why don't you tell our listeners and Stephanie a little bit more about yourself? Great. Thank you both so much for first doing the podcast. I think this is so fun as I was reading more about it and just like a beautiful way to connect all of this information to all of the different hand therapists out there, which is just so wonderful. So thank you for all the work that you're doing with that, which is lovely. I am Sarah Tuberty. I think what's helpful for here too, I was born with a limb difference. And those are the words that I like to use that work for me as a congenital limb difference. My left hand has a little bit smaller of a palm. I've got some little nubbins, I suppose, that there's like little tiny bits at the end of my knuckles is sort of what my hand looks like. And then I have a surgically created thumb for me that allows me to pinch, which is wonderful. And I grew up in Northern California and I became an occupational therapist. I love OT. OT is so lovely. So I went to school and became an occupational therapist in 2020. And that really came from a lot of work that I've done with the Camp Winning Hands, which is a summer camp for children with congenital limb differences in Northern California. And I just love this camp so much, but it's only a week in the summertime. And I just was like, how do I live at this camp forever? And found that OT was a wonderful pathway for that. And then I graduated in the middle of a pandemic, which I don't necessarily recommend as a time to graduate in a new career. But a lot of work that I've done within my OT journey really led me to wanting to study academia and theory more. And now I'm in a PhD program for occupational therapy at the Texas Women's University. So I'm excited to continue to dive down into further topics to help support the congenital limb different community, as well as parents who are raising those kids. Great. So. I had an opportunity to hear you speak recently at the World Congenital, and I'm not even going to continue the rest of the name because one of the things that came out of that meeting stopped in the middle of the meeting, and they wanted to just change the name of the meeting after hearing you talk about congenital limb differences. I just kind of want to talk about a little bit about your talk that you provided there that was to clinicians and how we as therapists, surgeons are working with our clients, patients that have congenital limb differences and how we can support them and increase just access and inclusion and visibility of these patients. In being a child that was born with something that was atypical, I suppose, I'll use that word even though I don't know that I love atypical either. Language is so fluid, which is really fun too. And so much of my childhood was, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with your hands? Why did your hand look like that? Were you born deformed? A lot of these questions I was trying to figure out as an eight-year-old. 
And my larger community was asking me these questions, but all the people that I loved and loved me was like, there's nothing wrong with you. And that's a really tough conflict to have when you're eight and you're just trying to figure out how to do long division, right? And then there's all of these larger elements that you're working on too. And so I really felt that there was always something wrong with me because that's what had come up. And I don't know what happened. And people always wanted to know what happened to my hand. And people seem to want to know or assume that my hand was a result of an accident or an injury, which absolutely is our pathways for people who have limb different. But in being somebody that didn't necessarily have that pathway, it became really tough for the larger community to understand that and this idea that they have seen how many people in their lives and I'm the first person they've met that's had a hand that looks anything like mine. That was tough to navigate for a little while. And then I really started hiding my hands because I was not interested in having that conversation with people. So I would intentionally hide my hand in sweatshirts or behind my back. And growing up in Sacramento, Northern California, it's hot. So I'm just wearing sweatshirts in the summertime and just sweating the whole time, which is not something I recommend. And it really was in occupational therapy school where I took this truly incredible class. And I love it. And I love everything about it. And it was on the social, political, and economic influences of disability. And it really just gave a whole history of disability theory and concepts. And I learned the social model of disability. And I remember the moment as I'm reading research about people who identify within the disability community and reading research essentially about myself and all of the same things that I was experiencing. And this idea that nothing's wrong with me and that nothing was my fault was groundbreaking to me as a 28-year-old as I'm unpacking all of these things. And it just became such this beautiful moment of liberation where I understood that a lot of these messages I was receiving to the community and even then started to think about myself was this idea that there's an expected way that hands are supposed to look and my hand deviated from that. So ableism is sort of a larger concept of there's this ableistic notion that a body exists in a specific way and that mine deviated from this notion of, of what we assume bodies look like and function like. Therefore, something's wrong with me. So then I internalized that and thought that about myself, that there was something wrong with me as a result. But then this class that I took truly unpacked all of this, and I realized that none of that is true either. And there are so many different types of ways that hands and bodies and everything can look and function. It was such a beautiful moment for me. And then continuing to work at Camp Winning Hands, continuing to talk to parents and kids. And I worked very closely with my hand surgeon, Dr. Michelle James, who's out of Northern California, the Shriners Children's Hospital of Northern California. We created this online resource for parents of children with congenital limb differences. And here I just kept thinking of these topics and these theories and just how can we say things better? And like, can we move away from the terminology of what's wrong with you to just Tell me more about your experience, which has really led to a core thread of all the work that I've done and all the work that I hope to continue to do. I know you also have written a book, and I'm grateful that I have one and I have a copy of it, but it really is focused on helping parents help their kids who are born with limb differences navigate their world. What was it like for your own parents that might not have had that resource? And how did they help you navigate your early years? My parents, it was a surprise, right? I was born in the 90s. So at that point, our ultrasonic technology 
wasn't as beautiful or as detailed as it is now. So I find, I think that most parents today can see limb differences on ultrasound, whereas my parents didn't. And I think no pathway is better or worse than the other. They're just different pathways as far as how we get that information. So I was born and it was kind of a complicated birth. I wanted to come out face up. My doctor didn't want to deliver me face up. So there's a lot of shuffling that was happening and a lot of, I suppose, distress, if we will, at the actual moment of my birth. And then the OGBYN took me, saw that my hand was different, and then immediately took me away. They didn't tell anything to my mom. It was my parents' first child. They didn't share anything that was happening to me with my mom. They just took me away. And my mom was sitting there very frustrated because there's all this shuffling that's happening and she just wants this baby out, right? Like it's not like we really enjoy that experience. And then she's like, hold on. I think in everything I know, I should have a baby in my arms right now and I don't like what's going on. And they weren't really sure what was happening. They just saw that my hand was different. Some limb differences are also affiliated with other syndromes. So they ran a bunch of tests on me to sort of check my neurological functioning, my cardiac, all that stuff functioning. And then they brought me back to my mom and just sort of shared, okay, your baby's okay, but she has this thing. And my mom was like, okay, whatever. I just want this baby because now I've gone through all this stuff. My parents kind of packed me up and took me home. And it was tough. This isn't anything that has showed up in my family. Some limb differences are affiliated with genetic syndrome. Some kids sort of have this in their families. Others don't. So it was a very big surprise to my parents. And there was, wait, thalidomide was the warning sickness medication that correlated to a lot of limb differences in the early 50s. So my mom then immediately went into a lot of, this is my fault. I was taking allergy medications. I did this to my baby. And there's a lot of guilt that parents who give birth to their children that is different than what we expect, I suppose, bodies and children to look like. There's so much guilt that comes with that. And that's documented in literature that I feel like we just don't talk about and we don't give our parents enough space to say like, yes, guilt is a real thing. And like, let's unpack it and work through it. So my parents felt very sort of lost and confused and they didn't have tons of resources. They had a friend who at that point in the early 90s, we needed to be sponsored by somebody in order to receive care at Shriners. So it wasn't necessarily insurance. Remember, it was kind of complicated. I remember that my parents needed to have a sponsor in order for me to get medical care through Shriners Hospital. So someone's friend connected them to this really lovely couple that helped collect money to sponsor me to receive the different surgical interventions that I had at Shriners with Dr. James. And my parents talked about being connected with Shriners, felt that they had a little bit more support there and that they knew that I wasn't just the only kid. And they really loved that and found that grateful. But still, like coming home on the day today, they talked about, well, we just let you tell us what you needed and let you figure out what you wanted us to do or not do. And then those were just sort of really took your lead. But things got complicated, right? There's things that came up that they didn't know how to best help me. And even as an adult, reflecting back on different situations that came up, there still is a lot of hurt and pain. And they're like, well, we did we not do anything good enough for you? And it's like, no, no, that's not it at all. There's all these layers of ableism and internalized ableism and what I thought about myself that I didn't really talk about. I didn't know how to talk about. I didn't have any vocabulary. And that wasn't anybody's fault by any means. But I do know that they would have really have benefited from having different types of community networks, different types of, of language, of conversation, of how do we help support our kid do XYZ activity. I mean, my mom talked about me wanting to do baton, baton twirling, midriff was a thing I was really interested in. And my mom was like, well, I, you know, I don't want to tell her no, but like, I have no idea what this is going to look like or how this is going to go. 
So she talked about wanting to connect with my baton teacher and sort of saying, like, what do you think? Would she be able to do these different types of things? Because they didn't want to set me up to fail miserably in a situation. And I was eight. So I'm like, I don't know. I want to do this. My friends are doing it. But even some things like that, like how do adaptive strategies look like? I remember finding one-handed pepper grinders in OT school, and that was amazing. Like this whole time, I could have been having a one-handed pepper grinder. But we didn't know. My parents didn't know. That wasn't something super common. So even little things like that, just knowing that they exist would have been helpful. I know I had mentioned this earlier to Kara before you actually hopped on. A coworker friend of mine was born with limb differences as well. And one thing I had mentioned, oh my gosh, there isn't anything that she cannot do. Whatever you give her, she does. And I'd always say, you're just amazing. And she's like, she turned it around on me and said, well, what do you do with that other hand of yours? Doesn't it get in the way? No, I said, I never really thought about it. I'm like, well, you're right. And she said, I was born this way. So I do everything that I know how to do. She's like, there's nothing that I really can't do. She's like, if I just figure it out. And she's like, I don't know what it's like to have two hands. So this is my norm. And I was like, you know what? You're right. And so many times we look at it and we want to, I don't want to say fix it, but like you mentioned earlier, there is no normal. You know what I mean? Just because somebody has two hands versus somebody who only has one hand or a partial hand or whatever, like that's their normal and that's okay. So I just thought that was interesting when we were talking earlier about that. I know the book that you had authored or co-authored was for parents, but is that something that would be beneficial for therapists from that perspective to treat them? I don't want to say not treat them different, but would it be beneficial for therapists to read that? I mean, Carrie, you have the book as well. I don't, so I'm going to have to get it apparently. (laughs) That's to help deal with their child going through what they're going through. I know we always as therapists want to fix everything and come up with an adaptive way and give them adaptive equipment. Well, maybe they don't need adaptive equipment. Maybe they just do it the way they want to do it and they don't need anything adaptive. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. The book is fun and it's so colorful. I just love how welcoming it is. Um, We worked really hard for it just to be the space of here's everything that we know about wind differences and care at this moment. And here's just, you can pick from it what you want. And in here, it's offered as Dr. Nina Lightdale-Murek from um, Children's Hospital of Los Angeles is the co-author. She approached me after I gave a presentation on my website that I created with Dr. James. She approached me afterwards and was like, hey, can we turn this into a book? And it was really lovely to actually be able to hold it three, four, almost four years later. And we talked so much about having this menu of an intervention and that within the women different world, there can be such conflict between parents and kids about whether or not to have prosthetics. Like that is a huge emotional divide. Same with having surgery. Like that is a massive emotional divide. And people feel so strongly or can, can feel very strongly about the decisions they did or didn't do. But that doesn't mean that every child that has this particular type of limb difference has to have this particular type of intervention. So we really wanted to kind of unpack that and really offer it more as here's the different types of things that exist. What works well for you and your family? And there's research that states that decision that the parents 
feel like most comfortable with is the one that they're the most satisfied with afterwards. If parents felt like, oh, maybe I didn't really want to do the surgery, but felt pressured by their peers or their parents or the medical community to have the surgery, and then they chose to do it, they're less satisfied as a result of it is kind of one of the things that came up from that article, which I really thought was interesting. So I really like this idea of offering different of things. Maybe the kids and the parents like it. Maybe the kids and the parents don't like it. But I think there's benefit to knowing that these are the different things that exist. And then you can choose what works best for you and your family. So that's really the sense of empowerment that we tried to write with the book. And this really came from so many conversations that I've had over the years with parents. Parents have reached out to me personally, have asked a bunch of questions when they just find out that they have a baby that has a little difference, or just talking with the parents of the kids that have come to hand camp. I've been a part of the planning committee, beautiful camp, and camps can be so fun, which is lovely. And I know there's so many really lovely camps. And I've talked to parents at this hand camp for the past, oh my gosh, it started in 2009. So just all of these years of all of these kids and parents coming through. But yes, as therapists, there is a really good book. Eileen Bradbury is a psychologist, I want to say. And she wrote a book that's called Counseling People with Disfigurement or something along those lines. And it is fantastic. It was written, I want to say, in the 90s. So it's a little older, but has really beautiful content in there. And I do really like it. And it's written for therapists specifically. And how do we address some of the psychosocial issues that people that have burns, cleft palates, and congenital limb differences are going through? Because that they kind of hang out similarly in the research underneath the umbrella of disfigurement, where it's not necessarily a word that I love. However, there's research from like the 1600s, like it goes back for a very long time. And that outlines that these people that fall under this umbrella tend to be more functional, that their barriers aren't significantly functional barriers, that it's more of that psychosocial implications of being somebody who has a visible difference and then that visible difference is very outwardly prominent. I do think that there's benefit from the therapist reading the book if they have time or unpacking. It's written to be read in different sections. It's not necessarily written to be read back to front, really just to kind of have people pick out what works best for them. But I do think it can be helpful just to provide different types of language, different types of terminology and ways to talk to parents and what therapists can pull from that. Or if any therapists get really excited about it and want to write something about how to communicate to the therapist, all for that. I'm here for all of the materials. One of the things you said earlier was that you wrote the book and what's in it is what we know now. And I think that's really true, even just in my 16-year short career of working with kids with congenital hand differences, what we knew and did and said, and even what you said earlier about just language being so fluid. And obviously, even just the name of the World Congenital Meeting, just how our terminology and the way that we, I don't even want to say label, but just the words we use around limb differences has changed so much too. Um, so I kind of want to talk about a little bit of the terminology and some of the the phrases that you used even during your talk, but one you've sort of used this evening is ableism. I guess the phrase that you used was internalized ableism. So could you just give the definition and how that plays into congenital limb differences as well? Oh, absolutely. Ableism operates very similar to other isms. It's this larger preference for an abled body, sort of a condensed version. And that has significant ramifications to 
limitations to lots of things that people are experiencing, right? So if we're being ableistic in healthcare, that means that we are denying possibly care to individuals because we don't think that their bodies are worth it, right? This came up a lot in COVID, right? So people that had pretty significant disabilities, they were concerned that ableism was going to deny them treatments and prefer treatments over people who had more able-bodied individuals. So sort of larger, I think ableism, when it comes to thinking of limb differences specifically, ableism can operate with this assumption that people can or can't do something. And I use this example of when I was 19, or maybe a little older, maybe 21, when I was applying for my first jobs after college. And I had a job interview with this woman. I was applying for like an office admin position. And I had one difference. And she asked me during the interview if I needed a special keyboard. And that if I did need a special keyboard, they didn't have funds to buy me a special keyboard. So would I be able to use a regular keyboard? And I wasn't totally aware of all of the different types of laws that we have in place, the protections so that employers can't ask these types of questions and that there are in fact laws in place that they would need to fund a special keyboard, if we will, air quotes around her words there, or just adaptive ways for me to be able to interact in the workplace. But that's something that is covered under legislature. So all of those things aside, I was just really surprised that this assumption of whether I can't use a typical keyboard or that I needed something sort of different and special and how that was extra and then complicated and then a bad thing and how quickly that happened in that conversation. So that's a sort of what ableism operates on a little bit. And then internalized ableism is a step further in that that's what we think about ourselves. And I think that ableism is really interesting because the disability community, sort of different to other minority communities, is often they're the only ones in their experience that typically disabled children don't come from disabled parents. Sometimes they do, but more often than not, they don't. Whereas thinking of other sort of culture and ethnic groups, they tend to come from similar communities and that the disability community is often siloed, that there might just be myself thinking of my life. I was the only one in all of the schools that I went to that had a hand that looked anything like mine or even legs, right? And that we're often kind of by ourselves and that most of our community does not identify with the disability community as much that we're interacting with. So because we're not hearing the stories and seeing other people, a lot of the world that I'm experiencing is people who have two hands. And then I'm looking at their experience. And so much of what they're saying to me is, why am I different? So I haven't seen anybody else like me. So I clearly am the one that's different. And I start to think those things about myself. And internalized ableism can then put limits on our own behavior. So it's this thought of it and this would be something I have said and would say to myself, but I don't have two hands. Why would this person like me? If they could date anybody in the class, why would they date me when I'm imperfect? Or I thought of myself as a clearance item for a long time. I remember thinking that, but like I'm broken, something's wrong with me. So why on earth would someone want to date me when they could date anybody else in the classroom? Which of course isn't true, but I was 12, you know, so how can you try to unpack all these things? And then it can also be like, I've never tried kayaking before. It's new. I'm with all of my peers. I haven't really tried anything similar to kayaking before. I don't have two hands. This is clearly a two-handed activity. I'm going to sit on the bench and say, I don't want to swim instead of trying to engage in that activity because I'm not quite sure how it'll work for me. It is also another way of how internalized ableism can work. And then if we're thinking of OT, right, these are barriers to participation. And these are barriers I'm putting on myself. And that that is very true. Like I built that in my brain based on all the different messages that I had received up until that point. I can definitely see as a child trying to go through those struggles 
and just trying to fit in because that's really what you want to do at that age is just fit in and blend in with everybody else. So it's amazing just listening to you and looking at it from a different perspective with just trying to you are like perfectly imperfect just the way you are. And I thought of that as soon as you were talking about that. And it's nice to hear the transition of where you were then to where you are now. We all are. We all are perfectly imperfect. And I I really like what you said earlier too, Steph, that like there is no normal. There's such a wide variation of what we all look like and how our bodies move and the things that we think like there's such a beautiful wide spectrum of variation of what all of those things could be. There are no two people with the same face. So everybody's faces are individual and it's their own. So it's not like, oh, well, you have this kind of face and I have that kind of face, but my face is right and your face is wrong. I thought about that when you had mentioned it earlier too. And like, you're right, there is no way that we're supposed to be. We are who we are as is. (laughs) So another phrase that you discussed at the meeting was inspiration porn. And I thought that was really interesting because I know we've all seen things on social media. We've seen memes, we've seen posters, we've seen all the things showing different people of different abilities, performing all of these activities and highlighting what they're doing. So can you talk a little bit about inspiration porn and how that fits in to the limb difference, I guess, community? Inspiration porn is such an important concept. Inspiration porn is a term that was coined by Stella Young, who was a truly lovely disability rights activist in Australia. And she has a wonderful TED Talk called I'm Not Your Inspiration. And I highly recommend you check it out. It's so good. And she really talks about this notion that, and I think this kind of comes back to disability history and what that looks like in the landscape of the United States in particular is kind of what that class I had focused in on. And that there wasn't a really great place for disability. Sort of pre-industrial revolution, disability kind of exists. There's a variation. Maybe people worked as farmhands. The industrial revolution came about. People that identified within the disability community like weren't as fast or as productive within the industry. So then they became separated. Then they became sort of panhandlers where hand and cap and handicap became terms. And so we just didn't really fit in this new society that was created in this industrialized world. And then we had a lot of eugenics and now we're going to be removed. So there's all this terrible things that was happening to the disability community. We weren't allowed to participate or be in the world. So that's not super great. Then we sort of changed and it became this celebration of this area of pity. So we haven't quite become equals. We kind of bypassed it and then became this super abled person. Still isn't a part of society. And then it became a tough place for us to exist in because now there's all this pressure that we have to be super amazing at everything that we do. And when we hear inspiration porn is this idea that people within the disability community, their stories are being exploited for the benefit of people who are not disabled. And we think of the term like the only disability is a bad attitude. And that really takes away the disability community, the disability culture, in thinking that there's nothing wrong with the disability community and that it's a very beautiful, vibrant, creative community. But when we say that that's not disabled or I don't see disability, then that means that we don't recognize that they have this different journey that we're going through and experiencing. And then it puts us in this space where where now we have to be like climbing mountains and doing all these incredible things in order for us to be celebrated in 
celebration is this thing that we need to strive for and that we can't just exist within the world. So we're either less than human that can't do anything or the only other place for us is then we have to be super abled and super amazing at all the things that we do. It's a very gray area because there are people who do identify with the disability community who are doing really cool things. And we want to be able to celebrate the cool things that they're doing. But the difference is where the story is coming from. Is it coming from the person with the disability themselves? Are they communicating the cool thing that they did? Are they the ones that are owning that narrative? Because if they're not, and it's being exploited and told about them in a way where we're using lots of really inflammatory language, then it's just exploiting their story and their experience for the sake of clicks or for the sake of more money. We talk a lot about the like poster children that were happening in cities and things like that. Here's this poster child and we need to feel pity for them. So let's give them money and over-dramatize their story as a way to gain more money or feel bad for them. Is also not super great for us either. And those become really damaging. And we're trying to create equality between the disability community and the people that don't necessarily identify with the disability community. How can we as therapists that are treating these patients ensure that one, we're using terminology that's, I guess, more up to date. So maybe you could speak to some of that. And I love how you said that. And I think this is so true, just that language is so fluid and our verbiage is so fluid and just surrounding the limb difference community. But then to how can we as therapists ensure that those of us that are treating these kids, that we can support them and ensure we aren't using their stories, that we're letting them tell their stories and we're not telling it from a different side or that we are utilizing that language just to support them. Yeah, these are great questions. And I think it's important, again, to highlight that language is so fluid and that we're all still learning and that learning will all ever evolve. I think in ways, particularly when I think of inspiration porn and the medical community, I think a lot about posts on social media and just making sure that if we are telling patient stories, that we're telling what their story is. You know, I sort of think about we can have the same picture of a kiddo that's doing something. And it becomes inspiration porn when we're like, oh, look at how amazing we are because we fixed this child and now this kid can do this thing and we're amazing. That falls a little bit more on the inspiration porn side. What can be a little bit more like patient forward or kid forward is if the child writes like, I'm so excited, I got to run this 5K. And then the hospital's like, oh, this is, you know, one of our kiddos and we're so happy that this child is able to do this thing. But using as much from that child or that patient or that client as we can and really leading forward with their story and then helping to supplement that. Because it's also, I mean, hospitals are, and our medical community in the United States is also a business. So I get that we need to promote the things that we're doing, but really trying to make sure that it's a story that comes from the child themselves and that the child wants that picture taken and that that child wants that child, that picture posted and that everybody can provide consent and has individual autonomy and agency in wanting to be a part of those things. Thinking about language that we're using in the different treatment sessions that we have, and it's also tough because some kids and families don't necessarily know language or they haven't come up with words on their own, or maybe they are saying things like deformity or whatever. And I think it really comes back to this idea of like, here, let's offer lots of different things. I was talking with a therapist who was saying that her mom keeps calling the child's hand the bad hand. And she was just like, oh, I'm not sure what to do because that doesn't feel great for me. And we know that how parents 
communicate uh, their differences to their children is how then the child understands that difference from themselves or for themselves. So if the parents are saying, this is your bad hand when the child is two, they'll pick up on that eventually. And then that becomes ingrained in who they think of themselves when they are five, six, seven, eight. So that's thinking like, oh, what are some other words that we could offer? Like we could say righty or lefty. And that's very neutral. People have right or left kind of offering that as terms and then really empowering kids and families that they can pick whatever words they want to. And like, here's lots of different options that people have used. Limb difference is one, hand difference is one. Some people really love the word stump. Some people don't like the word stump. Some people really love the word nubbin. Some people don't like the word nubbin. Some people like to use the term army or my left hand or my special hand. Any of these types of words are really whatever the child, family, adult an adult with a limb difference gets to choose what they want to talk about their hand. And some kids may not have been given that opportunity before either. So I think especially if kids are struggling with being name called or things like that at school, that they can pick what words they want to use to describe themselves and they can ask their peers in their school to also use that same language too. And thinking about, about different kids to offer in sessions, that language is a similar thing too. We could offer that. I think even in the core of occupational therapy, so much is offering choice and really having things be functional activities. So what is it that the child wants to work on and offering like here is an adaptive strategy or sometimes a button hook can be really helpful for buttoning buttons. So we could offer it and demonstrate it. And if the child likes it and it works great for them, wonderful. If it doesn't work for them, at least they know that that's a tool that maybe they want to use later. Or thinking of what are different types of alternatives to tying shoelaces. It was really cool in the 90s to have the elastic, like kind of swirly shoelaces. So I remember having those when I was a kid. Or Velcro is an option. Or those zip shoes are also options. And all of these are options that are available. And what does the child and the parent want to do? And what are different avenues of pathways for that? I think it's helpful too. Yeah, those are really great ideas. And just, I guess, creating an avenue for those discussions and allowing, like you said, those choices and letting the child lead that conversation. And I think you're right that we as therapists, we have some tools in our toolbox that we can utilize and can share what language we know, and we can give that option to the family and then they can choose. It's that child's hand. And so they get to decide how they want to communicate to their family to their peers, to the world, what their limb difference is, what it means to them. Sarah, so I have one other question for you, because I think this is really fascinating. One, I appreciate you talking about all of this, but you're also a flight attendant. Is that right? Yes, this is correct. Was that prior to becoming an OT or was that after? Or I think you're so cool. And I think this is really fascinating. Flight attending, yeah, so it's full time. I'm going to be a flight attendant for 10 years in September, which is just such a wild thing to think, but I've been here for 10 years already. And I became a flight attendant mostly that that interview when I was 21, 22 didn't go super well with that lady, the keyboarding. And that I had a friend that was visiting the town that I was living in at the time, and she was a flight attendant, and I was just applying for jobs. So I thought it'd be kind of fun. I loved travel. I was an exchange student in high school and I lived in Italy for a year, which was truly incredible. Highly recommend if that's anything anybody is ever interested or was contemplating and you're not sure if you want to do it, do it. Absolutely. It's amazing. But I loved that and I loved traveling. And I just felt like ever since then, anytime I wanted a present for Christmas or my birthday from my parents, I was like, just get a plane ticket somewhere. I don't care where it is. I just want to go somewhere. 
So I thought, well, if I'm spending all my money on plane tickets, I might as well get a job where I can get plane tickets for free, which would be great. I applied to be a flight attendant and then moved out to the East Coast. What was that, 2013? And then through flight attending, I was able to continue going back to Northern California for hand camp, which was really lovely in that I was 23 and jobs that we get when we're 23 may not pay you the most to be able to fly across the country to go attend a camp where you had to take a week off. But it became very fluid with my flight attendant life, which was awesome. And then I started volunteering at the Shriners Hospital in Philadelphia. I knew that I wanted to move myself forward sort of in my career, but I wasn't sure which direction I wanted to go. And then at the Shriners Hospital in Philadelphia, coupled with all my experiences at hand camp, I then found the word OT and was like, yes, I want to do that. So I started OT school in 2016. And then the airline, I was hired by US Airways, and then we merged with American Airlines in 2016. And so I was able to take educational leave from US Airways. They were offering them. And I did it so that my parents could get flight benefits and come see me. And it was always conditional. They're like, just because we gave you one leave doesn't mean that you'll be able to continue to get leave through your whole program. But the cadence of it worked out fine. And I was able to continue working as a flight attendant during my schooling. So I would go up to Boston for school and then drive back in the wintertime and fly during the winter and then drive back up to school in Boston. So it was a great part-time job. It's one I already knew. And at five, six years, you get paid semi-decently. Your pay goes up every year, which is nice. And then I came back when I graduated from my OT program. I was going to fly while I studied for my boards. That way I had a job and I didn't have to immediately try to find a new OT job and I was able to get some more funds. And then the pandemic happened. So new jobs were kind of funky to get. And then I was able to keep my job as a flight attendant during that time. And so it's been really lovely in that I have the audacity to think that I can go wherever I want to in the world and I can just show up places. And I love that both personally, I can, like my husband and I just went to Japan for our honeymoon. And I don't know that I would have ever thought that Japan would have been accessible, but I'm a flight attendant. So I got myself there for free. We bought his ticket. That was great. And then I also have been able to just show up at different conferences, different types of events and just continue meeting people and connect with them. I, I went to an event a couple of years ago and met with a bunch of other people that have limb differences. And then we collaborated and wrote a comic book. So I wouldn't have been able to do that had I not been able to just show up places. And I'm really grateful for that. But also flight attending is a wild life in and of its own. You're in a metal tube up in the sky and it's really lovely and dynamic. And also some days are really long and I'm in Portland right now on a layover. So it's fun. Oh my gosh. You just keep getting cooler and cooler. I think you're just amazing. You're an OT and a flight attendant and you wrote a comic book. You wrote a book for kids with and parents with limb differences. And I mean, just you do it all. I think it's amazing. I love it. I think you're getting cooler and cooler to me every second. Having traveled both within the United States and internationally, how has your people's perception maybe in different areas of the world been with just reacting to your hand difference? Or has it even been an issue? Is it accepted in other places of the world? That's a really good question. Initially, when I started working as a flight attendant, I hid my hands and I was very slow on the cart because I was trying to do everything one-handed. Because I had thought that nobody would want to interact with my hand. So why would I put a drink on my hand and then put it in front of someone's face, making them interact with it? 
So I definitely engaged in all my concealment behaviors, which is also exhausting, by the way, like trying to hide who you are and different parts of yourself and then being so anxious for the moment when someone discovers you is just exhausting. And I highly recommend that if people are engaging those behaviors, deep breathe and find the community and really liberate yourself from that because it is so beautiful to be who you are and to be able to authentically represent who you are. And, you know, I think truthfully, and this even makes me think of being an exchange student. And when I went to Italy, I didn't speak Italian when I went there. So if people spoke badly about me, I didn't know. And I think there was a lot of power in that. And that the things that people could communicate to me with was where you're from, you know, what kind of ice cream flavor do you want or gelato flavor do you want? And those are all words that I could respond in. And I didn't know Italian social culture as much when I was 15. 16 is when I was there. And I just feel that they were so much more excited that I was in their town from another country that that became more of a topic of conversation and didn't really notice people talking poorly about my hands, which I think was what I really needed at 16. And I'm really grateful for that. I do feel that socially, I hear lots of really beautiful things coming out of Europe and out of the UK. But I do know that they have a little tougher barriers with access. So I know they really love the Americans with Disabilities Act and that all of our buildings that are new that are built are accessible. Whereas if we're thinking of like cobblestones and like ruin ruins, those are less accessible. Even just different parts of Japan weren't necessarily accessible physically. And I think other things, the things that people would say to me in English were more kind than I think anything negatively that was said in a language that I didn't understand. So for the most part, it's all been really positive and receptive, which is wonderful. It's interesting that you say that about the ADA. Right after I graduated from PT school, I, along with a girl that I went to school with, we backpacked through Europe for a month. And everywhere we went, I think it was because it was just on our minds, because we just sat for our boards and everything was about just mobility and emulation and whatnot and access. And everywhere we were went, we were like, that's not ADA approved. That's not ADA approved. And we're like, okay, we're in Europe. That doesn't exist here. But it was interesting to point out all of those different things. But maybe in the near future, they'll have their version of the ADA. Yeah, that would be amazing. Well, Sarah, I am so appreciative of you joining us. This has been wonderful. I knew just from meeting you in Minneapolis last month, I knew that I wanted to have you join us. And I'm so grateful that you did. And for sharing just your journey with becoming an OT and sharing your knowledge with our profession and just how you are spreading the word on limb differences and increasing visibility. And I love it. And I'm so appreciative, especially as a therapist who treats these kids with congenital differences. And it's continued just to open my mind. And like we talked a lot about, just language has changed and it's continuing to change. And I think we're just learning more and more and it's just, we're continuing to adapt. So I thank you for sharing that with us. Yeah, thanks, Sarah. It was a very fantastic discussion. Our podcasts don't usually go this long and I could probably sit here for another hour and just keep listening. But thank you for sharing. I appreciate it. You are so welcome. And I've just carried all of these, like my own story, the story of all these parents I've spoken to and all these kids I've spoken to that have just so authentically have entrusted me with their stories and have shared so many deeply beautiful and 
personal and hurtful things that I just want to continue to share as much as I can about what I've learned from them, what we think all about ourselves in order just to help create this more inclusive terminology, more inclusive world so that kids aren't hiding themselves because that's exhausting and unnecessary, completely unnecessary. So I'm here to help empower our parents, help empower our kids. So, so grateful for this podcast. Thank you for having me and for all the work that both of you are doing. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Hands in Motion brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. You can listen on the ASHT website and or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple, Google, Amazon Music, and Spotify. Once subscribed, please rate and review the podcast to help us reach new listeners and to continue offering valuable, relevant content. You've been listening to Hands in Motion, brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. To learn more about ASHT and to subscribe to the show, please visit ASHT.org. We'll see you next time on the Hands in Motion podcast.